0: We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 16. Um, This morning, as we have taken a little bit of a leap, we've skipped chapter 16 and jumped up to chapter 17 as we pick up the pace in moving through Acts this semester. Now, if you're reading us uh, linearly, moving right through Acts uh, is where we... We're looking last week, looked at great, three great conversion stories and what God is doing in converting and changing, that He is sovereignly saving. What we see after that is that Paul continues in his missionary journey, and God sends him through multiple places in what is now known as Greece, places like Thessalonica, and through the Berean church. In Thessalonica, things go really badly for Paul. There, uh, he, he witnesses, uh, seeks to proclaim the gospel there, and yet uh, the, he is persecuted and, as well as many of the other believers there in Thessalonica, and there is great challenges and sufferings in the church in, in, in Thessalonica. But then Paul leaves. He essentially flees Thessalonica and goes to Berea. And Berea is quite different. The Berean uh, folks uh, receive the gospel. But not only that, but they open their Hebrew Bibles and they see, is this what this man Paul is saying? Is it true? The Bereans have gone down in the history of the church as those who are good Bible studiers, as those who receive the word, but don't simply receive the word as lemmings, but go and open their Bibles and seek to see, is this true? They hold accountable those who are teaching the word of God. So Paul leaves Berea, and he leaves Thessalonica, and he then travels on ahead of his uh, missionary partners to Athens. As this is where we pick up Paul in his missionary journey in the great city of Athens, picking up in verse 16, and I'll read through verse 34. Hear God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, now we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself is the one who gives life, who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And he is actually not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This ends the reading of God's holy and Aaron and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But the word of our God stands forever. All right, what we see here is Paul showing up to the great city of Athens. It is a city of great beauty. And when we want to walk through the way, I want to walk through this seemingly lengthy passage with lots to deal with here. In order to put some, give us some, some steps to walk on as we move through this text, I simply want to walk through this in light of Paul's experience. What Paul saw, what Paul felt, where Paul went, what Paul said is the points I want to look at this morning. But within each of those points, I want to point to at some point within that, we're going to look at what Paul saw, but then we're going to see what is it that that says something about the reach of the gospel in each of these points. That within the context of the book of Acts, I believe that Luke is communicating to us that the gospel can get anywhere, it can go to anyone, and it can reach all peoples for salvation. So we're going to look at that this morning. So first, let's look simply at what Paul saw. What did Paul see? We see this in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that is, he's waiting for his missionary friends to join him in Athens. They've stayed behind in Berea and Thessalonica. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Athens was known as the city of idols. In fact, one ancient historian said there are more idols in Athens than there are people. There are places in the world that are still like this. Uh, my friend Jim Whittle, who comes and preaches for us occasionally here, he tells the story about one of the first times that he was in India, in which he would walk in, the first time he would go into these cities, and the things that was so moving, that was stunning, is that every house Every home, every part of the city is covered with big and small temples. Temples down to the size of this monitor, up to great temples that are larger than some of our, our than this church building. That There are gods everywhere. In fact, in India, there are known to be over 300 million gods in India. It is a place, it is a country of idolatry, and that is how Athens was. Addison is, a- Athens was a city of great beauty. It was a great city of great learning. If you know your history very well, Athens was one of the first great cities of the world. But Athens had fallen on hard times at this point in history. Their epoch, their, their great time of climax was five centuries before, in which you may know that the birthplace of philosophy, of intellectual thinking happened there in Athens, which we see have men like Socrates and Plato are there holding court within Athens at this place called the Areopagus. But they had, been, they had been overthrown by the Romans as the great power in the world. And yet it was still a city of great beauty. It had vestiges of its old glory. It was still an intellectual hub. It was still a place in which there was great art, architecture, and all sorts of art going on in the city. It was a place of great business. And so this is where Paul shows up. But here's what I want you to see what struck Paul. Was it the beauty? Was it the art? Was it all the trappings of Athens that drew his attention? No, it was the idolatry. He saw the idolatry. The adjective here is that, you, that Luke uses is kate, kate dolos, which occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It's been found only in a few other places within Greek literature. And what it means is it's full of idols. It has, it has literally the rendering that the city was swamped, it was inundated in idolatry. And as he's saying, what he sees and what Paul communicates to them is he says, I can see that you're very religious people. He connects with where they are at. But what I want you to see here is what Paul saw is that he saw that the gospel is needed everywhere. That even in Athens, a city of great wealth, a city of great intellect, a city of great art and culture. He sees this city, and he doesn't see it for all of its greatness. He sees it in its great neediness for the gospel. We can, I would think for for us, some of us maybe, I did not grow up in a very high culture city. I grew up in a beachside town, Many of you grew up here in Carrollton, and if you've ever experienced this, when you go into one of the great cities of the world, you go into a place like New York City, or you go to Paris, there is a sense of awe as you walk around. You walk into the Louvre, you walk into some of the great museums, and you literally feel like you could get lost in the culture, in which it is too big for you, in which you can be enamored by the trappings of the city, and yet that is not what happens to Paul. Paul sees it through gospel lenses. He sees Athens, not for all of its greatness, not for all of its intellect and beauty, but for its neediness, its neediness for the gospel. You see, Paul did not view Athens as a city that was going to serve him. He saw it as a city that needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, Carrollton, Georgia is not necessarily seen as a great city of arts and culture, but it is a great city, at least in my mind. I say this all the time. I think of Carrollton is a great place to live. It is one of those places that is large enough that there is constantly things to do and yet small enough that you know the things to do. And you can know people. I sit in Galilee Row this week and I can hardly get any work done because there is King's Chapel people going in and out the door constantly. You can know people in a city like Carrollton. But here's the question for us. Do you have gospel lenses when you look at Carrollton? Do you see Carrollton as being here to serve your needs? as being the place of business for you, as being the place that's going to serve you, that's going to have the nice sports programs for your kids and going to be safe for you and for your family, it's going to serve your needs? Or do you see it through gospel lenses? Do you drive around Carrollton and do you see its need for the kingdom of God to come down here? Do you have those kind of lenses? And do you see the idols of Carrollton? Listen, in your discussion guide, for those of you that are in community groups, and if you're not in a community group, January is a great time to get involved in a community group. In which we'll, you sit and you discuss the sermon, you apply it and you drive it deep into your hearts as to how we're going to understand it. But one of the questions I'm going to ask you to discuss today as the, in this week as community group folks is this. What are the idols of Carrollton? Because we tend, as Christians, we look at Carrollton and we think this is a wonderful Bible Belt town. It can't get any better. We're right smack dab between Tuscaloosa and Athens and Auburn. We are the heart of SEC country. We're in the heart of Bible country. This is the glorious place to live. And yet the reality is is there are idols that are ruling and reigning in the city. What are they? Do we think about it? What is the ruling worldview in Carrollton? What is the thing that drives people? What do they most long for? What gives them joy and satisfaction and meaning and significance? And is the church engaging with those issues? Are you engaging with those issues? Or are you simply a consumer of the city, not a lover of the city? Not someone who sees the needs of Carrollton. All right, that's the first thing we see, what Paul saw. And what he saw is that the gospel is needed everywhere, even in a lovely place like Carrollton. Second, we see what Paul felt. What Paul felt. Verse 16, once again, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he sees the idols. And what happens inside of his spirit It says that Paul is provoked. His spirit was provoked within him. And the key word here, this word, reflects what Paul's feelings, what his reaction was as he viewed, as he walked around Athens, as he walked around the public square, and as he views these idols. Now, this is a word that is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. The only place that we see this word provoked used in the Greek is in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And you know what it refers to? It refers to God's reaction when he sees idolatry in Israel. There's a famous story in which God is provoked. You may have known about, read about this if you were in Sunday school as a kid or reading your Bible. At some point during the the course of Exodus in which the people of Israel have left, God has saved them, has drawn them out of slavery. They have crossed over the Red Sea. They are wandering in the desert, and God is providing for their needs. And in the midst of providing for their needs, he also provides them a covenant in which he says, if you will serve me, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he gives them laws. You may have heard of them. They're called the Ten Commandments. And there's some other laws that flow from those Ten Commandments to help in the national life of Israel. And God says, if you will follow these, you will be my people and I will be your God. And they all say, yes, we will follow those. But it is, Moses cannot get down the mountain. He stays a little bit too long. And the people of Israel wonder if this whole thing is really true. And maybe Moses got swallowed up by the glory of God. And so they decide that they're going to take worship into their own hands. And so they say Moses isn't around. So they go to Aaron, Moses' brother. And they say, we need a God to worship. And we want a God like the gods around us. And so they take all of their gold, all the, 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 the things that they had, God had given them, had provided them from Egypt. you know that's the gold they used? The Egyptians say, we want you out of here. Here's all of our gold. We will give you our gold to leave. And God's great provision, instead of worshiping God with it, they take that gold, they melt it down, and they create what? A golden calf. And the reaction in Exodus is that from God is this, is that he was provoked against the people of Israel. This refers to God's jealous anger. This is what Moses is, I mean, that Paul is. This is what he is feeling, the jealousy for the glory of God. That his longing is that God would be glorified in this city. That his longing is that the people in this city would turn from these idols and would turn to the God who has the name above all names, who is glorious, who is worthy to be worshipped. I think about this. There was a a famous missionary named Henry Martin who years ago, he was uh, one of the early missionaries to Muslims in Persia. And he says this, and I think it reflects Paul's heart, his missionary heart here. Henry Martin says this, I could not, as he began to go into the, go into the, the Muslim um, temples and their mosques, he says, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me here if he were to be always in this place dishonored. That is the heart of Paul that when he looks around and he sees the idolatry in the city and he sees the fact that people are dying serving false gods it dishonors him it distresses him it provokes him to anger but understand that this is this is reflecting God's jealous anger this is we, now we think of we think of jealousy in God as being petty because our jealousy is very petty our jealousy is this like little children when we somebody we see somebody who's better than us we think I'm jealous of them. When we somebody see somebody who's more attractive than us, it's our jealousy. It's out of our weakness and our insecurity that we're jealous of other people. But God's jealousy is righteous and holy. It is like the jealousy of a husband or a wife who is jealous for their spouse's attention when they are seeking and when someone is trying to woo away their lover. It is a rightful jealousy. It is a jealousy that says, that is mine. They have given themselves to me, Are they, and I am theirs, and no one else has the right to take them from me. God has a right to be jealous in that way. And Paul is jealous for God in this way. Now, what I want you to see, though, is what motivates Paul in this. And what Paul felt was a jealous anger. He was provoked in his spirits, What I want you to see is that his motivation in that jealousy was the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is a man who was zealous in his life, zealous for the law. But I, what I want you to see, and I, see, I want you to see this, that when you're a zealous lover, when you're a jealous lover, that in your jealousy, and when you pursue the, this lover, your anger does not destroy them. It draws them back in. It drives away all other lovers in order to draw that one back in. And this is how Paul responds. His, his motivation is the gospel in which what he sees is he sees God and his jealousy when he sees a world that is running towards idols and other gods. What is God's response to that? Is it to say, let it all burn? Throw my lovers aside? No. What does God do? God comes into this world to draw his lovers back to him. To draw his people back to him. And Paul responds in much the same way. Do you see how Paul reacts? It says he's angry, he is provoked, he is distressed in spirit, and yet does he take a baseball bat to the idolatry? Does he take a baseball bat to the people who are bowing down before these idols? What does he do? It actually, it says he begins to dialogue with them. He begins to reason with them. He gets to communicate to them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's jealousy for God was life-giving, not destructive. It was gospel-shaped, not angry in the fact that he wants to bring wrath and destruction upon Athens. That when we, you, you and I, the way we normally, and I want you to think about this in terms of the way you, you respond to things you see on social media. Because we are an angry people in America, are we not? not I mean, if anything has, has taught us for the last couple of years and this particular political climate it has been this as that when we get on these places when we get on these and you walk, look and you read through the comment section as we have to be the most angry people in the world. We hate the people who disagree with us, we hate them Christians and non Christians alike liberals and conservatives we hate those who disagree with us and yet paul finds one here who's not just disagreeing with him but is running that is violating the god that he loves and yet his response is not what i'm going to kill you his response is i want to bring life to you i want to reason with you i want to dialogue with you in other words his words are gentle his words are reasonable he tries to woo people to the gospel not destroy them with the wrath of god this is Paul's motivating force, is the motivation of the gospel, is the reach of the gospel that changes the hearts of people who say, Listen, and this is the response of so many Christians, is it not? And the response to Christians when we see a, a church blown up in Africa or the Middle East is your heart response, I want to kill them all. Or is it a gospel response, which is this, I'm angry. These people are going to hell serving false gods and my response ought to be, I long to communicate the glory and the beauty of the true God to them. Which is your response? Where is your heart at? The missionary heart takes the heart of Psalm 67 where David, the psalmist says this, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. You should recognize that. What is that? That is the ironic benediction In other words, David's missionary heart is this, is have the face of God shine in love upon people, not in wrath. He goes on. That your way may be known on earth, that you're saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. You see what Paul felt. Paul felt... A jealous heart for the world to know this God. That's the heart of a missionary who uses a world that is going to hell and uses the anger and the jealousy for his lover, for the one that he loves, and uses that as energy for the mission. Do you long to see people sing? Sing for joy for the Redeemer and for their Creator. That's what Paul felt. Third, where Paul went. So you see what Paul saw The gospel is needed everywhere. We see that Paul has felt what he felt, that the gospel is the motivating force. The third, we see where Paul went. We see where Paul went. Picking up in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of divine foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, what Luke, it's interesting here, we can skim over it because this passage is so famous and so known for Paul's work with the intellectuals and with the philosophers that we can miss that there's other groups that are mentioned here. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the fact that the gospel can go anywhere. The gospel can go anywhere. Look at the diversity of the groups to whom Paul witnesses here. First, where does he begin? As he begins everywhere. He begins with those who already understand the Hebrew Bible, who have a religious category. He really, where does he go? He goes to the synagogue first. Just as he did with Lydia and in the chapter we looked at in chapter 16 a couple of weeks ago. That he goes to the place of those who are already followers of God in a general way. They already know the scriptures. He goes and communicates the gospel to the religious folks. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Similar to what he would have done for Lydia and those women on that the shore that he does here. He goes and communicates and he opens the Bible as Jesus did. Remember this is the story where Jesus goes into the temple and he opens the Bible and he reads a passage from Isaiah, the daily reading in the synagogue, and then he says, this passage is about me. And then he does it, and the same thing on the road to Emmaus, Well, that is what Paul is doing. He comes into the synagogue where they're, reading, they're opening the Bible and they're reading the daily reading from the Hebrew Bible. And then Paul gets up as the teacher and he says, this points to Jesus and he shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And he articulates the gospel to religious people. Understand this, that the gospel need, is needed in churchy settings. The gospel is desperately needed in a place like Carrollton, where there are churches everywhere, but Christians almost nowhere. You do, I've said this before. I've said this, I think, during this series. But did you know that there's actually less people going to church in Carroll County than there are people going to church in Atlanta? We think of the, of the countryside as being a highly churched area, but nobody's there. Nobody's there. But the gospel is desperately needed. Listen, I did ministry for three and a half years in Mississippi. If there is a place in the world that is understood to be a Christian place, it is Mississippi. And yet what you will find is there are people there handing out bulletins and singing in choirs. And I've had these conversations with people who from the day they were born, they have spent their whole life. It is expected. They've put it on their gravestone, what church they were involved in. It is in their obituary. It is a big deal. You cannot, you cannot become a city council member essentially in Brookhaven, Mississippi, unless you have a church somewhere. And yet there are people all over the place sitting in those pews who have never repented and they've never believed. They have no joy in their life, and they have no Jesus in their life. The gospel is needed in religious places, but we, don't, we see that we, we move beyond that rather quickly. We also see where did Paul go. So he goes to the synagogue to speak to the Jews and the devout persons, but we also see, and he went into the marketplace where he simply witnessed to those who happened to be there. This is a, the word here is the word agora. Is the marketplace. I've walked around this marketplace in Athens before. It's a vast open area, and we have almost nothing like it in our cultural setting. You see, back then there was no social media, there was no radio. There was, no, there was hardly any paper to distribute news, so the public place was the place in which business was done, gossip was shared, transactions were done there. But it was also the place in which, if you wanted to hear the news of what is going on in the world, it's the place where heralds would come and they'd stand up on a rock and they would yell at you about what's going on in the world. It's CNN on a rock. That's what's going on, right? But not only that, but then, be, like we do on social media, there is there is discussion going on. We're hearing the news and we're discussing what is going on around the world, what is going on within Athens, greater Athens, and within Greece itself. It is the place in which all the dialogue, all the commerce is going on in the city. Everything is going on here. And yet, it is here in this public space that Paul seeks to articulate the gospel. Now, this is important. And this is important because we live in a world in which Christians are told more and more that this does not, our faith does not belong in the public sphere. And in fact, we've gone along with it for far too long. That we've been willing to say that we are well our gospel and the proclamation of the gospel merely to what goes on in the church buildings. And yet we are unwilling, or we have been afraid more like, to go into the public spaces and say that the gospel applies here. The gospel matters for the way we do business. The gospel matters for the way what goes on in our culture. The gospel is not merely for something that was going to be communicated on Sabbath day at the synagogues. Paul went out day in and day out and articulates the gospel in places of business. Do you do that? My job is to communicate the gospel here. And to communicate to the gospel so articulate that you know it so well that you can articulate it in your places. And your places of business, in the place where you live and work and play, this is your marketplace. This is your agora. Are you willing to go out? You understand this? The, 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 the thought process of the scriptures is that the gospel goes in all places. There's a great book by a man named Eugene Peterson. I, I love, I've loved simply the title of it. It says that God plays in 10,000 places. It means that the gospel belongs everywhere. In Proverbs one twenty, it says this, that wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the marketplace, she raises her voice. That The gospel is something that we must cry out. Now, yes, culturally, we don't need to get up on a rock and shout. Some people may do that. You'll be thought of as rather weird. That wasn't weird when Paul did it. But there are ways to do this. You know, there's other places in the scriptures when people witness in different ways. There's this bizarre account in the, in the Old Testament where a man named Naaman has a little servant girl who he brought into slavery from capturing her from Israel. And she's essentially witnessing and showing her her love and service to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she communicates to Naaman when he gets leprosy about the great God and about his prophet Elijah. And so Naaman, who can't be healed by any of the great uh, magicians of of his country, and so he goes to Israel, to little podunk Israel, to this prophet named Elijah and says, I hear you serve a God who can heal me. And lo and behold... He goes and washes in the Jordan River River as Elijah told him, and he is healed. Now there is this bizarre case where what Naaman asked for, he he asked Elijah what his price is gonna be. What do you want me to give you? And Elijah says, I don't want any payments. And Naaman simply says this, Well, can I do this? Can I take two donkeyfuls? In other words, what two two barrels that donkeys can, can handle of Israelite dirt? And so that when I go into the temple of Ramon, which is the God in which his country served, when I go in the temple of Ramon, I can throw down the land from Israel and that is where I will worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was his way of witnessing in the heart of the temple that I serve a different God from Ramon. I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would you be creative in the way in which you articulate the gospel in the public spheres? But also have to, have to understand this. I want you to see two things about the way Paul articulates the gospel here. And we need to understand this because there is a lot of work that has to be done, but it's going to require two things of us. If we want the gospel to be communicated in the public spheres, we need to have the humility to ask questions. Almost all um, commentators on this, when they look at the way Paul would have articulated the gospel, is that he would have used what is known as the Socratic method, which is the way in which you did dialogue in Athens. It comes from Socrates, in which the way you learn is you ask other people questions, and you dialogue back and forth based on what they know. You come to understand what they believe, what their presuppositions are, what their worldview is, and you ask questions to understand what it is they believe, and you actually get into a reasonable, gentle dialogue of questions and answers back and forth. That takes humility. Humility. For far too long, we have this assumption, in fact, this arrogance that people should believe exactly what we believe. It's simply because we think it's true. Understand that people have not grown up in the way you have. They've grown up in a post-Christian society. Most, Most of the kids that your kids are dealing with do not necessarily understand Christianity. They don't know words like sin and heaven and hell and redemption. They don't even believe in it. They hardly understand there's a God out there. And so that Paul has the humility of the willingness to ask good questions. And I also say this. The other thing, if you're going to communicate the gospel in public spheres, you have to have the patience to explain the biblical worldview. And it's going to take time. What's the response when when Paul articulates the gospel in the Agora? They're utterly confused. They say, who is this babbler? And then they say, he's preaching of foreign divinities. In fact, what they believe, what's going on here, is they believe that Paul is preaching about this God in the resurrection, and they get confused about the Greek word for resurrection, which sounds like a foreign divinity, the female version of a foreign divinity. In fact, their category for the resurrection is so foreign to them that they don't even think he's talking about the resurrection, they think he's talking about this goddess of life. And that is the reality. When you, listen, when you live in a post-Christian society in which there's gonna have to be what they call pre-evangelism be done, in which you're going to have to articulate the biblical worldview. Which has to understand what it is that they believe and what they don't understand and articulate that this is what the Bible says, that there is a God, that there is a heaven and a hell, and you're going to have to patiently explain that over and over and over again. I lived in um, Sarajevo, Bosnia, which was considered for many, many years, um, before before they started slaughtering each other, as the bastion of pluralism in the world. It is the place where East meets West, where religions can get together and they can can love each other. In one place, you can stand in one place in Sarajevo, and you can see a mosque, an Eastern Orthodox church, a Roman Catholic church, and a Jewish synagogue from one place. And they pride themselves in this pluralism. But in the midst of that pluralism, in, in which they actually don't care about what anybody believes... That's how they got around it. We simply don't care. You believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe, but it doesn't matter. But the, reality, the difficulty there is what we found. I worked for Campus Crusade for Christ there is they did studies and they found that it took 18 months of evangelism with somebody before they, they could even begin to understand the gospel. And which their categories, were, the gospel was so foreign to them that it would take 18 months of persistent relationship, of persistent gospel conversations before they'd come to a place they can receive Christ. That's the kind of patience it's going to take here. The reality is, is that some of us are going to be called the synagogue ministries, and some of us are going to be called the marketplace ministries. But we, cannot, we should not fear, for we are called to go everywhere. I also want you to see that there's a third group, and we're going to focus our time on them in what Paul said. But I also want you to see a third group. And as a third group, this is what is known as the Stoics and the Epicureans, and then the group of the Areopagus. This would have been, we, I don't know how to describe them other than maybe the cultural elites, the high intellectuals. We could call them the academics of society, the talking heads of society. That is who these folks are. And Paul is willing to engage with them as well. So what do you see? We see Paul engages with those who are the religious and the devout. We see he, involve, he involves himself in the business realm with those who are simply walking around the streets. And then he also involves himself with the intellectuals. What is it that Paul believes about the gospel here? It's he believes the gospel can go anywhere. He believes it can go anywhere. The gospel is needed by everyone, and the gospel has the power to go everywhere. In Carrollton, we have some people who are generally aware of Christian ideas. We have the synagogue. We have the devout religious people. But we also have a university where people come from all over the world and all over the country, and they may have no categories for what we believe here which we have opportunities to engage with the intellects, with the academics. The gospel is desperately needed in all of these cities and all these places in our city, right? The religious people of Carrollton desperately need. This place is choking on our religion of death, on our religion of morality and personal self-life change. The gospel is also desperately needed in the marketplace of the city. There's a disjunction between the gospel and our lives in this town, between the way we do business and the way we do life where we do the gospel, in which we can come to church on Sunday, and yet this is as a pleasure-loving, comfort-seeking, and self-centered and selfish city as I've ever been in. As much as any other place, the gospel is desperately needed here, and the gospel is desperately needed amongst the movers and shakers here, amongst the intellectuals, amongst the academics. And Paul shows no hesitation about believing that the gospel has a rightful place in those, in those places. So if you're a professor, do not allow the gospel to be driven out from the academic places in which you live. It is, a unity, it is a university, which means unity in diversity, which means if diversity is not allowed there, if your voice is not allowed there, then you should stand up and communicate the gospel even if it means suffering for you. Yes, in a, in a way that it has integrity, in a way that is wise, that is shrewd as serpent and gentle as doves, But you're to communicate the gospel there. Paul says this in Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. I think as Christians, because for the last 100 years, so much of fundamentals in Christianity has been this, is we have removed ourselves from the academic setting, and we have been scared of science, and we've been scared of learning, because we view it as the great bastion of things that are going to be against Christianity. And so we fled from it. But actually, I think underneath that is the belief that the gospel doesn't belong there because it cannot overwhelm the belief systems of those who are there. We think we are, we are too focused on the fact that we are not intellectual enough or smart enough. But the reality is this, is the gospel makes the wise simple and the simple wise. And there is a place for it, even in the places of highest learning in this, in this country. We desperately need it because that's the place where our culture and our country is being shaped all right, and here's why. Here's why the gospel has the power to go there, and we, this is our last point. Because the, the gospel provides a more compelling worldview. It provides a more compelling answers, and this is what we want to see with what with with Paul said. I'm not going to read it, but we see it in verses 22 through 34, in which Paul is taken for the Areopagus. The Areopagus was kind of like a, um, a panel of the intellects. If you want to be able to speak publicly and not be disowned, these are the people you have to get approval from. And so they're bringing Paul in. They want to know what are these ideas. And what Paul, I want to, to show this, that when Paul comes to them and he articulates to them, that there is a God that is bigger than the gods that they serve. They, see, the, the gods of the, the gods of Athens, they were prickly gods. If you ever read, if you ever remember from your high school reading, they're reading about the ancient myths and the ancient gods, the Greek gods, they were prickly, weren't they? They were very human they were emotional. They seemed to have good days and bad days. They were erratic. You would have to appease them all the time. For example, Poseidon. If you wanted to go out on the ocean, you had to give a sacrifice to Poseidon in the hopes that he, in the hopes that he wouldn't destroy you and your boats. If you didn't worship them and adore them, you didn't, you didn't worship and adore them because they weren't beautiful. They weren't something worthy of your worship. And Paul comes to them and he starts where they understand. He sees that there is a God, that most of all of their other gods, there is a God to the unknown gods. And he says this, let me proclaim to you the God that you claim not to know, that you're bumping up against this reality, and I want to tell you about this God. And he articulates it in about a six-point sermon. A six-point sermon, I'm just going to give you a few of them. First, he tells them that God is bigger than the gods they have because he is the God over all creation. See, the gods of the Greeks were local gods, there was the God over the sun and over the moon and over the wind and over the waves. They had all they had their, their realms of creation. But he says, this unknown God that I'm proclaiming to you is the God over all creation. He's greater than your gods. Then in verse 25, he says, not only has he created everything, but he sustains everything. He holds all these things into place. This would have been going against the Epicureans. The Epicureans believed that God was distant from us. He was like a deist to God who wound it all up and set it, to, set it loose. But this is a God who's sustaining. And the third thing he says is that this God is ruling and he's actually ordering the world. He said, You nation, you can come this far, but you can go no farther, which means that God is sovereignly ruling in the world, which means he's involved. He's involved in what is going on in this world. And here's what I want you to see. Is that he is a great God. He is the creator of all things. He is transcendent and above us, and yet he is a God who is imminent with us. He's involved in our lives. This is a God who's better. This is a God who's better than all the other gods that the Greeks serve. And I want you to see here is the gospel. What Paul said is he communicates this about the gospel, that the gospel can challenge anyone. And what he, in articulating the greatness of God, he says it this way. He said the gospel can, can challenge anyone for two reasons. Because everyone lives as if there's a God. Everyone lives as if there's a God. He says, you actually know that there's a God like this. And he actually points to their own writers. He gives two quotes from ancient Greek writers. One says this, for in him we live and move and have our being, which means all my existence is caught up in this creator. That there's something within their own writings, within their own literature, within their own art that is bumping up against the reality of a God who's greater than us, who's greater than all these small mythical gods. And then it says, we are his offspring. We are the ones who are created by him. What he's trying to say is that in your own writings, you you've, you've have a sense that there is a God like this. There is a God who is great like this. And I would say this is the chase today. <laughs> Even though we live in a world that is secular, in which the, the, the thoughts du jour is that there is no God, and that, or that God is not involved, or that God is some vague thought out there, that there is not a God who, who would actually invade himself into our lives and tell us how to live. That is the secular world in which we live. But yet, even in this world, in our modern world, we see, we see that there is a sense of God. We see it for the fact that people want to communicate morals and put them on other people. See, the secularists would say that there is no God, so you cannot have any objective morals. You can't go to other countries and say, this is wrong. You can't, you can't push your morals upon them because they don't believe there's any objective truth. There's your morals and there's my morals but yet there's no other objective standards. And so who are you to come tell me how to live? And yet, the way we live our life, when we see something appalling, we can't live like that. For example, Peter Singer says this. Peter Singer argues that society would be better off if we eliminated all those with birth defects up to two years old and we euthanized the old. But this should be legal. Now, listen, a secular person looks at this and goes, that's appalling, that we would slaughter those who are mentally disabled in our country? And yet, where do we get the moral objectivity to say that that is wrong if there is no gods? For example, we would love to be able to go to other countries, to African countries, and say the way that they treat women and say that's wrong. But what secularists have found is that they, when they do that, they're being inconsistent with their own worldview. They're saying, I have no objective right to claim this of people, but I'm still going to say that that is wrong. It is inconsistent. Because they don't believe in objective gods, and so the issue is this: is that if you want to go and say that something is wrong, it is that is like our culture's unknown god saying, "Listen, there's a god out there. There's a god who has objective truth. There's a god who's put it in your heart that says that we know that if we treat women in objectified ways, if we if we enslave them, that that is wrong. And therefore, if you know that something is wrong, such as the objectification of women, and yet you have a god. Who doesn't a presupposition that doesn't allow you to get there? Then there must be something wrong with the God that you serve. There must be something wrong with the starting place of your worldview. And that's what Paul is saying: is that you know that there's an unknown God. You know there's a God who's greater than you. You know there's a God who has created you. The gospel challenges everyone because the gospel, everyone lives as if the gospel exists. Challenges everyone because we know that God exists. He's put it in our hearts. Romans one articulates it. That we deny God, even though we know he is there. The other way, we know that everyone, the gospel challenges everyone is because the resurrection provides more compelling answers for everyone. Think about this simply in regards to suffering. The gospel provides a more compelling answer to suffering. For example, one of the things that baffles historians is that Paul comes here and he articulates the gospel to the philosophers and the intellects of Athens. And very few people become believers But over the course of the next couple hundred years, what happens to Christianity in places like Athens? It explodes. It takes over as the dominant worldview and the dominant belief system of the Roman world. How did that happen? It's because they found something more compelling in Christianity than the answers that the Epicureans and the Stoics and the other philosophers are giving them. For example, let's put it this way. The Stoics believe this. They believe that when suffering comes, you are just to be strong. Just control your emotions. that Don't let your heart get attached to anything. You stay, you stay foreign from it and far from it. And that when you die, you simply we all get caught up in the all soul. But when we see suffering, we're, we're not supposed to. We're supposed to be detached from it. Don't feel anything when you experience suffering or when you see suffering. That's what the Stoics believed. But the Epicureans believed something quite the opposite. They believe there is suffering, and so they believe that you should. This, this world is all we have. If there is no afterlife, and if, when you die, you die, and therefore, but there is suffering in this world, and there. So therefore, what you, the way you should live your life is: you should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. In other words, avoid suffering at all costs. Seek pleasure. Seek a good life. So in Stoicism, you don't let suffering get get to you. You don't let it move you. But in Epicureanism, you simply run from suffering. Epicureanism's answer is not very compelling because it's cowardice. You see suffering in the world and you say, I'm not going to engage with that because I don't want to experience it. Stoicism sees suffering in the world and says, I'm not going to engage with that emotionally. I don't want to acknowledge that it's there. They're both a morally bankrupt way of dealing with the suffering in this world. And they provide an inept answer. But the answer for suffering in Christianity is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the God that we have in Christianity is this, is one who saw the suffering in the world, and his answer was not the stoic answer, which is like, well, I'm just not going to feel anything. But how does he feel? He feels compassion, and he enters into the suffering. And that's his answer against the Epicurean. God experiences our suffering, he sees our suffering, he understands our suffering, he empathizes with our suffering, but not unlike the Epicurean, he actually enters into our suffering. He moves towards it. He says, I will take on your suffering. He put aside life in heaven to take on life of suffering on earth. You see, Christianity provides a model, a model for how you embrace suffering. The way in which you live your life. We have a God who actually sees suffering. He doesn't remain emotionally detached from it. We have a God who sees it and weeps and then enters into the suffering. But we have, so that's the cross. But on the other side of the gospel, we also have the resurrection. Because that gives us hope in Christianity. And we don't simply have a God who says, yes, okay, the valiant thing to do is to simply enter into the suffering and let it, let it beat you up. That's not what he does. But he also defeats suffering in the resurrection. Think about this. The answer to Christianity is this, is it gives you the power to say, I will, I will move towards suffering, I will experience suffering, I will engage with suffering, but I can do so because I know that the suffering I experience in this life for the good of other people, I know that in the end, the worst thing that can happen to me is death. And death in the res- because of the resurrection has merely become the door to eternal life. In other words, by defeating death, he provided a more compelling narrative, a more compelling story. And the Christians live this out. Historians ask the question, why is it that Christianity grows? It's because these truths were lived out by Christians in which, like the God that they served, like the story that they believed, the good news that they believed is that there was a God who entered our suffering, who saw our suffering, who felt our suffering, and entered in. But then also has given us hope in the midst of the suffering. And so what did the early Christians do? In the midst of the plagues that were destroying hundreds of thousands of lives in the cities, the Christians stayed. Everyone else was taking the Stoic and the Epicurean approach. They were running, but the Christians ran towards the suffering. That's the challenge. That's the difference. They say, because our faith, does not, our faith fulfills our deepest longings of our heart. It gives us a story and it gives us a narrative that is more compelling than the stories they're telling in this world. And lastly, I want you to see this. The gospel challenges everyone... Because it provides us a way to be right with God. Paul says this Listen, God is the father of all people, but I have bad news. He's also come to be your judge, and you have separated yourself from that father. In fact, the Athenians acknowledge that there is a God who is their father. We are his offspring. Yet they also acknowledge that we are ignorant of him. He is our unknown God. We don't know how to please him, we don't know how to serve him. And Paul says that's really bad. And God will not allow your your ignorance to go on forever and ever. You must repent of your ignorance. And he says, but here's the beautiful truth, and here's the wonderful good news of the gospel. It's this. That the God who looked at your suffering, the God who entered in and took on your suffering and took on your death, is the same one who is also your judge. In other words... In the gospel, we have the God who sees our ignorance, who sees the fact that we were not just ignorant, that we were running from him and we hated him. And yet the response of that God was not stoic and it was not Epicurean. It was a God who entered in and provided a way for us to know God the Father once again. And it's that one who is our judge. So that if you turn to him, if you turn to him in trust and faith, that that judge will be gracious and merciful. That is the story that we tell. That is a story that we tell the world, that we have, a, we have a gospel that actually can allow you to face suffering in this world and to face it with courage and with hope and with life and with love. And not only that, but we have a gospel that says there is a God who has left heaven to make you right with him. Now that's a compelling story. Do you believe? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who are bold in our proclamation of the gospel that we would not be fearful. Gracious God, I feel like we are often um, like the Israelites when facing Goliath, that we're looking at our own strength and our own intellectual ability and our own power and our own ability to argue and our own ability to dialogue and our own ability to reason. And Lord, we've forgotten that there is power in the gospel, that there is a compelling story there that woos people to the love of Jesus Christ. Gracious God, I pray that we would be a people who know the gospel so well, who love the gospel so well in our own lives, that we would be compelled to articulate it to the world around us. That like those early Christians who ran towards suffering, that we would be those type of people, that we would run towards the broken in this world, that we would live out a reenactment of the gospel because we have the hope of the resurrection in front of us we have a God who entered into our suffering. So gracious God, I pray that you make us more and more as we understand the good news of Jesus Christ, that we would drive us out in such a way that we would communicate the gospel in word and deed with great power. And through that, Lord, win this city, win this country for the glory of God, that a place of idolatry where people are running from you and re- denying you and rejecting you, that we would see people turn back to God the Father. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.